Okay, we're in progress here. Hey, so, so, so I, have a, I, I have a statement to make. All right. So you see these records? Absolutely. I put them there because this is a Zoom call and this is a background. These have been there since I got them. I have nowhere else to plant these things. I can either <laughs> sell them on eBay, which I don't do, throw them away, which is kind of bad form, or stick them <laughs> on a wall. That's what they are. I just wanna just wanna make a little statement. And also the other statement is I'm hearing interviews that other band members are doing. I want to know what planet they were on when I was on that planet. <laughs> David, Clayton, David Clayton Thomas and Steve Katz both wrote books. And right. in both cases, they talk about how they were helicopters, helicoptered into Woodstock. We drove. We did not take, how do you make that? And I called Steve and I said, what helicopter? He said, oh, he didn't? I said, no. How do you? <laughs> Other people had to. We were able to drive right in. Oh, Okay. And then I'm hearing interviews about how the band started and how this, and I'm going, oh boy, and my memory's pretty good. Yeah. But I'm hearing some stuff that's way off. So hopefully what I tell you is going to be, if vetted and if uh, researched, will be a little more accurate. So there you go. And just for the folks who, who don't know, uh, this is Bobby Columbi, and he's our guest on our podcast today. And Bobby's great. And he's, get, he's been so influential in so many ways, founding member of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, but a career that's gone on for decades. Great guy. And there's you know, a you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be giving all these accolades while I'm here, because <laughs> what expression am I supposed to do? Okay, start again. Now watch. All right. So Bobby is such a great player. He's a wonderful guy. Everybody loves him. Yay, rah, rah. Buddy Rich loved his playing. Thumbs up. But what am I supposed to do when you're telling me this? This should oh. be before. Ah, uh, you know, say this and then say, here he is now. And I go, hey, how you doing? Hey, but you got to get your props in here. I mean, you know, we all got to give them to where it's due. You got to get your props. But we wanted to do this. We wanted I, I talked to Bobby about doing this because there's so much here in uh, not only just Blood, Sweat and Tears, the band that was so phenomenal. There were so many things that's going on. And I wanted Bobby to talk a little bit about the band, a little sure. bit about the early days, anything you wanted to roll through up to and including the recent things. You have to ask me questions because yes. I could just, you know, it, to go on forever. Well, let's let's do it this way. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the early days first in the in the early band. How did Alcorn. the band start? Exactly. Is the question. That's just, that's the question. OK, so here's my take. I was hanging around. In the, in the West Village, Greenwich Village, okay? Yep. Because my love is jazz. I grew up in a household with two much older brothers. One was a trumpet player, self-taught. His best friend was Miles Davis. My other brother, Harry, managed Thelonious Monk for 14 years. Yep. He was a high school teacher. He ultimately ended up discovering and being partners with Michael Keaton. So he has an, he's had an amazing career. He, I passed away a couple of years ago. He was an amazing guy, but they were much older than me. So I grew up ostensibly with Bach and Beethoven in my living room. So all I was listening to was the, the, the best of that, of that music, as far as I'm concerned. Pop music never resonated. It didn't make sense. The harmonies were boring. The playing was, you know, like rudimentary and the singing mostly out of tune indecipherable lyrics it was it was like you know things that, that, that but how am i going to meet girls playing jazz 
I'm not going to be able to. So while I was in graduate school, I started hanging out in the West Village. What I found out is the West Village was like France when Picasso was with, you know, the other great artists of the time or Macon, Georgia, where every unbelievable artist came out of the same, same area at the same. It was just this weird thing that happens. Well, the West Village was where every record company came to hear the acts. They didn't have to travel anywhere. The acts would play at the Cafe Ogogo. They'd play at Steve Paul's scene. They'd play at, at these clubs. It was, it, it was music central. Bob Dylan, Next Table. You know, every band that would come through, Next Table. You know, that's really what was going on. Anyway. Yeah. So I met Steve Katz. Steve Katz was in a band called The Blues Project. One of the members, Al Cooper, a, primarily a songwriter at the time, but wanted to be a star, was in that band. It just didn't, it didn't work for him because he because he 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 wanted to be more than they were willing to you know, let him be, as they say. Sure. So he left. It was acrimonious. Uh so Stephen and Al they couldn't stand each other. So meanwhile, I'm playing with every band that's playing in that area. Why? Steve, you will relate to this. Jake, I can see can relate to this. At that time, the drummers in the bands were the worst guitar players. Okay, so you're going to play the drums. Or the kid whose father had the most money to buy a drum set and had a garage where they could rehearse. The oh, drummers man. were always the like the last guy picked at a softball game. Right. You know, right. You're right field, right? Yep. But if you're playing jazz on your worst day, you kind of can play. Right. You use brushes. You, 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 I mean, you know how to play a drum roll. You understand dynamics. These drummers, by and large, were terrible. Oh, yeah. So, no, it's very everyone, true. So everyone was trying to hire me. They, like, I was in every band that was playing down there. It was fun. But I, I had this problem because I liked hanging out with the people in the West Village. They were fun. They were bright. It was great. And they were passionate about, you know, the times were an interesting uh, thing in itself, which we'll get to. Yeah. But, you know, my jazz friends, like the young jazz players, but there were people like Eddie Gomez that were, you know, younger than me. They were, you know, they were all hanging around. Yeah. They, they were amazing, amazing, great musicians. Anyway. But I wanted, I'm thinking, what don't I like about pop music? The lack of harmony, lack of great musicianship, lack of great singing. Like, you know, like songs, basically, were kind of lame. Yeah. Um, so I thought, what if I one day can put a band together with the people that I was hanging around with, the, the pop rock folk guys and some of the better jazz players, that you know, horn players. And I thought, you know, that'd be fun. But that was in like way in the recesses of my mind. I was like, so now Steve's band and he's my best friend, that's breaking up. So the Blues Project are now breaking up. And I'm concerned Steve not being a very versatile player. He's not, you know, there's a lot of stuff he can't play. I thought, you know, but the band that I want to put together, I want to include him, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not going to be a guitar-centric band. Obviously, the solo shouldn't come from that instrument. They should come from, you know, Randy Brecker or, yeah. Yeah. or you know, or Fred Lipsius or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. So at the same time, Al Cooper, who has left the Blues Project, has made a decision he wants to leave New York. He wants to go to England, wants to be a producer. He was a Brill building guy. He was writing songs for other people 
to cover, like Carol King, like all these people, Neil. I mean, they were all in that kind of environment, but they knew the business. They really knew the. They understood the details. I'm a schmuck that's in graduate school going for a degree in psychology. None of this is anything of my concern. None. I, I, I like playing. I like hanging out. I like girls. Yeah. So Al approaches me. He apparently likes my playing. He said, look, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Can we do a fundraiser? I said, what do you mean? A fundraiser for me. Would you just do me a favor? Play a couple nights at the Cafe of Gogo and hopefully I'll earn enough money so I can split. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. Sure, I'll do that. So, so we're rehearsing with him and he has a bunch of songs and some of them I really liked actually. Like I Can't Quit Her. Yeah, good too. I love you more than you ever know. Great tune. Except when we started rehearsing it, he's going ding, 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 ding. And I think it's James Brown. It's a man's man's world. And I'm I'm expecting him to be singing that. And he goes, if I ever leave, I'm going, so how? <laughs> what is that? He goes, I know it's 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 like just this. Okay, okay, whatever. So we do the gigs, and I ha- and and what I'm not sure about is I think that. Paul Simon and Judy Collins joined us to play, and we still didn't have any attendance. People didn't come out to see this. And we played like three nights. He didn't make any money. And and that was the end of it. But prior to those gigs, I said, why don't you invite Steve to play with you? He goes, oh, I hate it. He'll hate me. He'll never do it. I said, dad, you know, you're too young to hold a grudge. Let's, Let's work it out. So I went to Steve and he said, he'll never let me. I said, what if he does? Okay, I'll do it. I I do the same with, with Al. So the four of us played. He had a bass player that he had met by the name of Jim Fielder that he loved. He said, this, you know, so I, mm, he said, yeah, I got monster. He monster. Says, I got, so I got the bass player, Steve, you, me. Okay, so so we do it. Now, next thing that happened, and, and I'm hearing these interviews and no one's mentioning this. And I'm going, this is exactly what happened. This is how. So at this point, I'm conjuring up who am I going to call? What kind of a band? I know the concept of it. I have no songs. So I'm playing in Washington, D.C. with Odetta. I'm you know, one of the guys that would be hired to do stuff. And it was a weekend thing. You know, I made a few bucks. It was great. Phone rings. It's Steve. We talked every day. And I said, hey, Steve, I got an idea. Call out. Ask him if we can do some of the songs that we played. Because I like them. And they would work in this band that I'm thinking about. And he goes, sure. Next day he calls back, Bob. And I'm in the, I, you know, I got to go. I have to leave. I have to go to the gig. There's a sound check. And he goes, yeah. I said, yeah. He goes, listen, Al said, yes. I said, fantastic. And just when I'm ready, he goes, wait, I go, what? And he wants to be in the band. I'm thinking, I thought he was going to England. And yeah, we can do, and we have a gig. And I'm going, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, I'm sitting, and the name is Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and I'm writing it down going, what? What's just happened? Like, look, he wants to start a band similar to probably what I had in my head, and I'm going, fine. So so we go back to New York. We have a gig. We're opening for the James Cotton Band. One of the, how history after 50 years gets wonky, here's, mm. a, here's a perfect example. The name of the band. Al Cooper came up with the name. His story, which works for his narrative, is I was playing late at night with B.B. King. My hands were bleeding. I was sweating. 
uh, you know, associating himself with BB King and clues, <laughs> you know. Now what, yeah. it what it happened is when the promoter asked him about this band, even though it wasn't listed on the marquee as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, he had a Johnny. Yeah, you know, in those days, your records would be on the floor; they pile up and surround right. you. Well, it was like that with us, and I had to step over stuff because I, I, I had no room to 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 shelve all of these records. Same with Al, and Al had more than I did for sure. While he's talking to to the promoter, he looks down, and there's a Johnny Cash record on top. It says "Blood, Sweat, and Tears." It's the name of the album. So he goes "Blood, Sweat, and Tears." Now, Al says, "No, that's." Bobby's full of shit. I did. I'm going. Do you think I had a Johnny Cash album? <laughs> how, would I, how would I know that? He told me, but he likes the you know the sweating and the bleeding thing with, with yeah. BB King better. But that's yeah. like that. That's what happens as time goes on. People start to create their own history, and and whoever they speak to last becomes the story. Right. And I've I've witnessed this over and over and over. And it's a you know like most of the time it's meaningless. So anyway, so, so that's how the band starts. Now, before we even have a full compliment, he said, who do you know? I said, I got one guy and another. So I call up Fred Lipsius because he's he's an arranger, great alto player, like Sonny yeah. You know, he oh, he's, a, he's, he's a phenomenal he player, great. unbelievable player. No, he, he was great and, and, and a great musician. So I said, you know, let's try him. Now, back understand something. Back then, a jazz musician would never play in a pop band. Right. Never. It would be like a sin to do that. I didn't give a shit. You know, I, <laughs> I was having a good time. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't difficult music, but it was fun. I could I could express myself the way I wanted to. And it was all good. Al was such a wonderful hustler. He got us a record deal. We didn't even have the whole band yet. And we played a gig with one saxophone and he told the audience, hey, everybody, uh, they got stuck in a storm. And I'm sitting there going, what? What? You can lie? Wow, this is a great business. Then that gig, and I'll never forget this gig. It was at the, at the Village Theater, which became like the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. I, and I remember walking in for a sound check, and I'm schlepping my drums in. I'm setting them up. This uh, 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 set was, I think at the time, it was a Gretz Sparkle Silver 18-inch bass drum that my brother got from Max Roach. Oh, there so, you go. So it's like we should still had that today. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was stolen out of my car. Yeah. And 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 I was insured, believe it or not. And I was so young. But some <laughs> guy that I play basketball with who was just starting a business for himself in insurance, he goes, you know, you should be insured. I'm going, yeah, how much does it cost? He says, eleven dollars. I said, okay. Okay, I'm in. So I was insured and I got in a drive. Anyway. Uh so uh where was I in this story? So, oh yeah. So we show up for the sound check at the Village Theater. And I walk in, and there's a riser. You know what a riser is? For you folks. It's, yep. Well, not everyone might. So it's it's a, a stage extension. It's something that sits up from the stage at, at various heights. And I walk in. My drums are on the floor. The bass amp, everything's on the floor. Al's organ is up in the air. He's in the middle of the stage on a riser. <laughs> And I come in, and I'm I'm innocent as hell. I'm going, why are you up there? He goes, sound is much better. I went, okay. So understand his intention day one is to be a star. Of course, yeah. Right? And and the band was going to be a launching point for him, if anything, because on his own, <laughs> he was never signed, right? Right. Okay. 
Fair enough. Oh, that's funny. So here's what I learned on that gig. Now I'm studying to get a degree in psychology. Okay. Understand that. That's what I'm doing. I mean, that's my day gig, right? Sure. So Al starts playing a solo. And you have to see it up here. I have to raise my hands. And he cuts the band off. And we, we stop. And then he starts taking the heel of his left hand and puts it on the lowest note of the organ notes and starts to work his way up and takes the other hand now he turns on the leslie speaker leslie. Whoa, whoa whoa and he brings his other hand I mean, it's, there's no music guys just that and he takes it and he goes to the highest note and puts his finger down and then rise in pain <laughs> And the audience is going crazy. And I'm sitting on the floor looking up thinking, he's got them convinced that it's harder to play this than this or this. And these are plastic keys. So then right. so it's not a big deal. Right. But they're buying it. And I'm thinking, rock and roll showbiz. This is showbiz. So I'm looking at it like this is just such crap. But at the end of the gig, the guy gives me $242 and some change yep. for a half an hour. Yeah, that's work. That works. And, and I'm thinking as an industrial psychologist, maybe I make 15 grand a year. <laughs> this is working for me. I should actually consider not leave, but I ended up leaving graduate school and and played. And when I quit, it was weird. I had like almost a year in my brain that I can't remember. I was playing with everybody. Everyone in, in, in the village. And then I did my first recording session with, with the new drum set that I bought for my insurance money. And I'm tuning it. And and Benny Powell, I think, is on the date. And he's early. He's a great trombone player. I, I believe it's Benny Powell. And I'm and I'm tuning my drums. And he's sitting there. And I am so nervous. This is my first recording. as with Odette. Yeah. And he's sitting there. And I'm, I can't read. And I'm I'm just bashing away. I'm just, you know, everything for me is, can I hear it first? And I got to hear it one time through, and then I got it, mostly. And I'm playing it. At the end of the session, Benny says, man, you were great. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> really? <laughs> like, well, because I didn't sound like everybody else. Yeah. I wasn't listening to anybody else except <laughs> Tony Williams, Elvin right. and Philly. I wasn't right. really listening to other, you know, other people. So my, so everyone was like enamored with my drumming. I was as average as it gets. But in that context, I was doing things other people weren't doing because I didn't know how to go. This is a break. I would never do that. My life depended on it. Sure. You know, and and and, <laughs> and I remember trying to take my first drum lesson. It's a disaster. I won't mention the name of the person because he has some some notoriety. Anyway, it's my first drum lesson. I can't read. My band's already a hit band. I mean, this is after Al, and I'll get back to that. Yeah. It's a it's a successful band. And the guy is sitting there with two practice pads. Those are rubber things that you can play on and not make you know a whole lot of noise. And he says, Okay, so let's see what you know what you've been doing, how long you've been playing. I said, ah, four or five years. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm holding the stick like the left hand like this. Like, you know, I I, I don't know. I'm playing all wrong, but I, you know, who knows? So he said, let's trade fours. You know what that is? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, so you keep time for four bars and I'll solo and then I'll keep time and you solo just so I can see what you can do. I said, okay, but but to what? He goes, what do you mean? I said, what's the music? 
He goes, well, just play. I go, just play? <laughs> I, I, have no, I have no concept of just sitting and banging on a drum, on, on a practice pad. I got to play something. I have to be, you know, express. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm hearing my, in my own stuff in my head. He goes, here we go. All right, ready? One, two. And he, I go, ding, 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 ding. So, so at the end of the of his, and he's going like a marching drummer. Yeah. And then it's my turn. I go bow, to do and it and ding ding it. And he's just sitting there. I go, what was that? I go, what I'm hearing. And he goes, okay, stop. Your hand is all wrong. Lift, turn it. I'm going ah, it's hurting. This hand, turn. I'm not ah. He goes just like like this. I'm going ow ow ow. He says, those are all the muscles you're supposed to be using to play the drums. We got a lot of work to do. I said, okay. Hey, Wendy's. He's calling his assistant. Uh, Bob, can you come here next week? I said, yes. Same time? I said, you got it. I said, great. Wendy. And she goes, Bob, what's your last name? I said, uh, well, last name's Columbi. And the guy that I'm with goes, you're Bobby Columbi? I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, my God. And he gets an album of ours, puts it on and says, how did you do this? How did you do this? And I'm the guy that can't play a lick. And, of course, and he, he said, let's take a picture. Wendy, get in here with the camera. Oh, man. So he takes a picture. And of course, I never come back. And to this day, or well, he's gone now, he used to show the picture. I taught him how to play. <laughs> anyway, back to the band. I love so, it, man. So Al gets a record deal with Columbia, was signed by Clive Davis, who's pretty new on the gig. So he doesn't, so he's kind of, he's smart as hell. I mean, this guy is smart. And what he understood is that he didn't know anything and that he was a lawyer and he was leaning on the people who were in touch with the zeitgeist, who were like the Paul Simons or me or, or just people that were having hits at the time, and he would play us, we, we'd come in, sit with him, and he'd play us other acts. Now, most acts would be offended as hell, but we liked him, and it was fun, and we'd pick out singles, like, you know, Lady Lady Lake would be a hit for Bob Dylan. Are you serious? No, I, I, it's a good track. And we'd sit there doing edits for, we loved it. It was, it was fun. You know, sure. I would leave, you know, like laugh leaving. Anyway, so they get a producer named John Simon, who's expert in the studio, knows his way around. He's a Princeton graduate fellow. He's terrific. He plays on the record. All of a sudden, I start realizing this record is getting away from what I had in mind. Like, for example, Randy Brecker's in the band. He, I think he plays a total of four bars on this album. Mm, yeah. Al and Steve are playing all over the album. And I'm thinking, man, that's the last thing I would ever want to do. And then Al does a song with just him and a string quartet. He doesn't even include the rest of the band. And then he and then he wants an overture with an orchestra to play bits and pieces of the songs that are, and I thought this is the most pretentious thing I've ever and I'm trying to in my own way sabotage that idea. So I said, <laughs> do me a favor, could you put a couple of mics in the back? Why? I got an idea. So I get this image of this orchestra, chamber orchestra, playing at an insane asylum. And one of the inmates gets loose and he starts howling and screaming and walking back and forth in the back of the room. So I, I said, just put on the two mics. And I, I don't know where it came from. I come up with this maniacal, insane laugh. 
like create, and they're loving it. They're thinking it's great. Not knowing what I'm trying to do is take away the pretentiousness of this overture by adding this insane laughter. Right. To make that's, it just be to totally ridiculous in everybody's mind. That's right. exactly yes. right. <laughs> and on House in the Country, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm making frog noises and I'm going, play it again. Watch, I'm making noises. I'm, just, I'm having a good time doing, you know, other stuff than drumming. In you should have brought, brought in Yoko Ono. Would have been perfect. He actually would have fit like a glove. <laughs> that. Like I'm, a glove. I'm, you know, some of that stuff, you know. But anyway, so um, that album comes out. We we have some tour support. Al has ulcers, his throat can't have my opinion, sorry, you know. I mean, there are people who love the singing of Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, all these people. I, I just like singers, you know. Yeah. That can not just can sing, but can interpret a song. Story. Tell the story. Written stuff and sing in tune. And it's that's a good experience for me. When you're like, yeah, like this, I it just and the content could be brilliant. But then my take is, I wish I could hear a better singer do that. Yeah, sure. But that's, again, purely my opinion. So I tell Steve, this band is going to fail in this current configuration. We have to get a singer. Steve agreed with me. So I call a meeting, the band, a band meeting. Al writes and believes that he called the meeting to fire Steve. <laughs> when, in fact... And <laughs> may have been <laughs> but we didn't intend to get rid of him we just needed a singer so i said al we need a lead singer can we a real singer that can support horns and what i'm imagining the band is going to evolve into uh if i ain't a singer i'm walking so band vote he's voted out not out of the band but they agree that we need a singer so so he leaves and then we go through the auditioning process and we find a monster singer in David Clayton yeah. Thomas. And Ooh. I think what you had told me once that Clive, I think Clive Davis thought that that album, uh, Childish Father to the Man was just the greatest thing since sliced Everybody bread. Everybody did. Right. Everybody you did. Sell? You sold like 40,000 copies or something. I right? think it was 40. I, th I you know, I think yeah, it was 40,000. 40, Columbia, sorry if, if I'm offending anyone, could fart 100,000 records. I mean, I mean, they had the best distribution on the planet. Right, right. And it just it failed because they put a lot of albums out, like the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble and this and that. They put a lot of records out at the same time. And we were in that, like the Electric Flag. We were one of them, okay? Um, and, and it failed. And I just, I believe that if it were, you know, and and I remember hearing like my drums over on the left. and the, But then in walks, you know, we decide, let's find a producer. So, so we're looking around and Steve says, have you heard this record? Time and Charges, the Buckinghams. And like, kind of a drag, that band. Yeah. And, and I listen and this audio is really good. The arrangements are fantastic. And I'm thinking, what a great record this is. And then I look at the, at the liner notes and there's a whole thing written by James William Garcio. It says on top, all songs, you know, produced and arranged by James William Garcio. In his notes, he's writing about Bill Evans. I'm thinking, this is our guy. He'll be fantastic. So he's an odd one. He's brilliant, but he's an odd fellow. Instead of staying at a hotel or something, he lived in my, I lived with my mother. She had the bedroom. I had the living room. We had big doors, you know, with clothes. 
And James and I slept in the one room. I was on the floor. He was on the couch. Through the whole process, we were together. And then we'd bring over like Fred Lipsius because we had a little piano. And I'd stand there and Fred would kind of doodle all over the place. I said, that, you know, that would work and that would work and that would work. And, 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 you because you left to his own devices, it would take a year for him to write a chart. He just, he'd just meander. But I would stand there and go, you know, that's really great. Why don't you use that? And I remember like thinking of this drum figure, like that, 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 that. And I'm thinking that'd be a funny, and I realized spinning wheel again this is like a podcast so i'm embarrassed to say just between us <laughs> i thought it was a silly song and when i heard it the first time david wrote it and he i and i'm thinking of lulu's back in town Bobby, 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 yeah. and then yeah. i hear Andy newman's in 1941 da, 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 da. what goes up i'm thinking man i've heard this song already before i've heard this before yeah and meanwhile i get a lot of what are you a jazz band a rock band a jazz band a rock band i'm hearing all these like insane questions i said stop labeling anything so i thought my i didn't announce this but i thought let's make this into something really funny fun let's have a fun time with this song because it's not you know a, a a lyric that you know will change your life you know so 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 I said, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll make this the, what do you jazz or rock? I said, oh, just listen to Spinning Wheel. We have a jazz bebop, a trumpet solo that right. I dropped in in the middle of a boom, boom, beep, boom, boom, and a cowbell at the beginning. Yeah. At the yeah. end, absolutely the Augustine. I like all with, with recorders and stuff. We, we just, oh, yeah. It's crazy. I'm having fun with the thing. Yeah. To my chagrin, they put out, not that they put out, you may be so very happy, although I didn't want that song on the record, but they, they all loved it, and, and it was a hit. It, it was a hit. Off the chart. But while that's happening, they start calling me saying, Bobby, there's a station in Miami that just cut out that trumpet solo. Spinning was a smash. I went, oh, no. Okay, no, no, don't. That, that, that's not even a joke. He goes, no, no, it's a, it's a hit. I went, oh, please. Please, no. no. I'm imagining myself playing the cowboy for the rest of my life. No, you're, that's it. And every cowbell player. In, and I'm going, I'm just not going to do this. Anyway, and it becomes a monster. And, and, and there's a real detailed story about that because it was an engineer strike. Like like, like all of CBS Records, they had a, a union of all the engineers and they had some amazing engineers. The greatest studios, the greatest. I mean, if you listen at the time to Columbia Records compared to RCA, Warner, any other record, the Columbia Records sounded 10 times better than those other ones. They had better mastering. That they, they and Roy Halley was a genius. Roy Halley, we got to talk, a, you got to talk. Yes, is got to give Roy his proper. We, we will get there. We will get there. No, I yes. give and success to him. People say, you know, to like, what do you attribute? You say, I said Roy Halley. Our record was used as a demo in every hi-fi store in the United States. That's how good that record sounded compared to anything else. And that's all Roy. Meanwhile, Garcio. I'm waiting for him to write a chart. I'm waiting for him to be a musical contributor. But he's like hanging, having a good time. And I'm going, an odd guy. I, I'm, I, you know, I'd say, well, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. And he'd go, great. And I'm going, okay, maybe he's got an idea. No, okay, nothing. nothing. All good. No, but very, very bright, nice guy. So about three quarters of the way through the album, he's packing his bag. That's where he's going. He goes, this is a disaster. I said, what's the matter? He says, I'm out. I, 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 he said, I can't stand Steve. I can't stand David. They're prima donnas. I'm out of here. 
And he, I mean, I, I, we were friends, and he really liked my drumming. He was into it. And Roy put me in stereo for the first time. We never drums in stereo before. That's right. Drums have all the dynamics. That's right. So if you want a record to sound good, even if the drummer sucks, make the drums louder. You know. And I remember hearing in my performance, going, "I'm not that good. What the hell am I going to do?" No, seriously, <laughs> I'm going. That guy sounds great. I'm not. I'm not. I'm good. And Roy's explaining to me because you've never heard yourself with a mic under, over, and, and the bass drum. You're, you're sitting on top of drums. You see, you're hearing cymbals, the snare drum, and then, you know, it's it's not even. But through headphones or through the speakers and the way it's mixed, it's perfect. And you're hearing detail that you would never hear in your lifetime. I'm going, man, you know. And 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 again, understand, spinning wheel has things like that rock drummers, one. I'm thinking Philly Joe Jones, get it and got it and bop and bow. Yeah. Bang thing. You know, like that that's sure. I don't know. I'm not trying to be hip. I don't know another way of playing. Right. And everyone's going, oh, that Phil, that Phil is so great. I go, it's not so great. It's like what anyone that plays that kind of music would play. You know? That's right. Anyway, so and then the band takes off. Clive is amazing in that I say to him, why don't you put the record out in December? Because because no one puts out records in December. I went, and? Because, well, you know, like, but we're not soliciting. I said, but you're at the beginning of December, not Christmas yet, and right. the promotion guys still have nothing to do, so they're going to go to the radio stations, but they don't have 50 albums to sell, records. Right. We just have one or two. I said, put it out. And again, Clive today would have had every reason to say, go away, you're bothering me. That Clive said, why not? He bought into the people that he knew at the moment had some idea of what was going, had a good feel for things. It's cool. So he did it. And he loved the album when it was finished. He just didn't think there were any singles because none of those singles, without the the uh, excitement over the band, the band got, people were flipped out. You know, they hear the audio, they hear the playing, they go, oh my God, this band is revolutionary. And it was. Yeah. It was great. But those songs by another band at that time, without that kind of inertia behind it, would not have been hits right? at all. But everything we were putting out, I could have put out God Bless the Child. That would have been a huge record. I could have put out other really four and five, six singles. And no one had put out three singles and had hits on them, but we did. I kept saying it. And Clive didn't yeah. argue. He he said, well, you know, everyone has a record already. You know, it's the third single. It's kind of, and I went, People love souvenirs. They don't care if they have the album. If they'll, they'll still buy a single, yeah, you, you'll see. And it and went to number one. So he he bought in. I mean, he didn't say you don't know anything. You're you're a kid playing drums. He just said, no, you're the kid who put this band together and it's working. You might have something going for you at this yeah. moment. So yeah. so anyway, I'm panicking. I go back in the studio prior to its release, and and I go to Roy Halley. I said, Roy, we are dead. Why? Gershio's quit. He left. It's not finished. And Roy looks at me, God love him. He goes, and I go, what are we going to do? And he said, what you've been doing. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've been producing this record. Do you ever notice after every take, Bobby, how did you like it? Bobby, come in and listen. Bobby. I go, yeah, but he's my friend. We And I'm the band leader. He goes, you've been making every call. Nothing will change. So I finished it. I mixed it. You know, I, I I wrote the liner notes. I I I sequence. I put the, the like the project together, 
with footsteps and the door closing. I was having fun. Yeah. I, in my head, if someone said, do you think you're going to have a hit? I went, not a chance in the world. However, sounds really good. Yeah. Hallie made this sound really good. I mean, so Roy, that, Roy, your, your drum sounds that Roy got were phenomenal. And, and you know, you, I know you're going to say you don't play very well and all this other jazz, but that's not true. And I'm, I, you do, you play superbly well, Buddy loved your playing. And I, I know that for a fact. I know Buddy's daughter and, uh, I know he, he, he ended he up so weird. He shows up to a gig, the, um, Almond Brothers opened for us at okay. the Fillmore East. They're two drummers. Right. And I, I never listened to Buddy. I was listening to Elvin and, and, and re really a different type of music. Right. So everyone's saying he's the greatest drummer in the world. I, and he may have been, I just didn't listen to it. I, sure. It just wasn't what I was doing. He shows up at the gig the same night as Leonard Bernstein shows up. <laughs> I swear to you, David, Clayton Thomas, a week in advance says, oh, everyone loves our band. We're the biggest thing in the world. Da, da, da. Oh, oh, Leonard Bernstein loves the band. I said, David, you got to stop saying stuff like this, please. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to bite us in the ass. And Leonard Bernstein shows up. I'm like, <laughs> I cannot. This guy's prescient. Good for him. He was yeah, right. good. It's all right. He was right. And, and Buddy comes in and I really didn't know who he was. I didn't recognize him. I mean, he comes up, he goes, hey, man, he gives me the biggest hug. I said, thanks. He goes, man, you're better than both of those idiot drummers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks a lot. He ended, I, I know the nightmare stories about him as a band leader. He was so wonderful to me. I was with him before he died, after his, his brain surgery in the hospital at UCLA. I was holding him. He was crying. Yeah. He was an amazing, he did a story you'll like and Jake will like, I'm sure. He, he called me one day. It's after I have lunch with him and, and you know, all kinds of stuff. And he, he said, uh, listen, um, Gene Krupa, house just caught fire and his TV caught fire and all his alley, he, he lost it. He also has leukemia. So I want to throw a goodbye party for him while he's alive. Yep, I remember it's that. Oh, you do? Oh, I, I, I know when that took. I was not there, but I know when that took place. That was so, a wonderful, wonderful the thing. Most beautiful tribute. And I'm, and daughter was there, and Zudi Slangleton, Joe Morello, obviously yep. Gene Krupa, uh, Don Osborne, um, uh, Joe Jones was there. Papa the Joe, probably. No, no, he well. was. Yeah, you know, Papa Joe as well. Yeah, uh, Joe Jones, and 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 then um, uh, the guy from Frank's. Shop and oh, Frank Ippolito and, and Al shop. Duffy, those guys, yeah, and and then the guys from from uh, uh, like Zildjian Sim, they were all this big table. And he called me, and said, I want you to be the young representative, the one kid who, again, the embarrassment is I never heard Gene either. <laughs> so everyone is doing toast. The only one that looks good is Gene, he's tan, he looks amazing, handsome guy. The rest of us look like pasty New York guys that were on our deathbeds. He looked amazing. And they're all doing tributes and thanking him. And he's going, God, you guys are so nice. And and I know what I'm going to say. I said, just look at the effect you had on everybody. You know, yeah. it's it just, you changed things. You were important. And, and he was so gracious and so sweet. He died shortly thereafter. Yeah. If you think of who does stuff like that, not a guy that should be as, as, as uh, uh, hated as Buddy, because that's one of the sweetest things I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, I agree with you, but Buddy, 
I only got to meet Buddy a few times. I saw him a tremendous number of times, uh, but I only got to meet him twice, only for a few moments. But uh, what you say is very true. And if you talk to people who really knew him, what you're saying is exactly the, that's how he was. There was one moment, though, that was very funny. I'm at his house. Kathy is dating a very handsome, young English fellow. So when I'm there, his wife makes some sandwiches. We're just sitting there hanging out in his place in New York. And he goes, Kath, Kath, get down here. And I'm sitting down. And was, all of a sudden, this, this girl comes down holding hands with this very nice guy. They're both very attra- an attractive couple. And I don't know what's going on. Apparently, he played the drums as a kid. So Buddy goes, Kath, right, get rid of him. Go with him. I'm thinking, and this, this, I'm, I'm thinking. I just thought of living with someone that may not work. Yeah, you know, I mean, hey. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. That's funny. Kathy will love that that story. I, I'll probably see Kathy next week. As a matter of fact, yeah, I see her a lot because she lives around here. Yeah. But uh, oh, that's that's great, man. But you know, I mean, one of the things I wanted to touch on, and I know when David came into the band, that was a huge. I mean, that's a vocalist. I mean, you know, you the first three words out of his mouth for, and you go well, done. Well, you saw the documentary exactly, and, and that's it, exactly what happened. Exactly. Well, we had heard him. Steve and I heard him at Steve Paul's scene. We again one of the hangouts. We, uh, you, yeah. you, Hendrix was there or, at the time. I I played with him when when his name was Jimmy James, and he was with a band called Curtis Knight and the Squires. And the Squires, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and we would jam in the afternoons because I had nowhere to play. And he, he liked my drumming, which I could never understand because his drummer, this R&B guy was doing shit I never heard in my life. And I went, oh my God, listen. He just liked what I was doing. And yeah. we would just play a little bit and do like a, a, a trio gig somewhere, jamming and playing some tunes. And then he disappeared. I thought something had happened to him. Phone rang, his phone number no longer in service. Oh man, and then I'm watching television. This phenom, I'm coming out of England and I yeah. see his hair like this. Yeah, clothing. I'm going, Jimmy Hendrix. His name is James. Yes, didn't Peter? I think Peter Asher took him over to London, right? Wasn't it Peter? I have no idea. All I know is I was so happy he was alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You didn't (laughs) know where he just left the planet. Yeah, no, it's amazing. But uh, you've you've talked about so many great things here. I mean, we talk about well, you know, the album of the year. I mean that that's great with Abbey Road running a distant second. You got to yeah. you got to look at that and go. Well, we sold. We were the soup du jour. I mean, we were it. It was very funny when they said you just sold you know three million records, and I went in New York State, right? And they go, what do you mean? I went in the world. You could call someone in Iceland right now, and they have the record. The reason is our potential demographic was endless. You could. No language was a problem because we were so instrumentally oriented with a great singing voice. Uh, and we were everywhere. And, you know, Columbia had great distribution and they sold an amazing, at the time, Clive will say, he says it in, in the movie, we we actually had sold more than anybody at that point. Yeah. So we were it. We were on television shows. And this is an American Grammy thing. Right. It was still early state, fairly early. You know, early stages of the Grammys, so we were just popular, yeah. and 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 I remember when they announced, and it was not on TV yet. It was like New York, Nashville, LA, and they had monitors so you could see, and and in Nashville, the winner is, and you would see it on the monitor. 
Yep. And he said, in New York. I'm thinking, that's us. That's got to be us. You know, mm -hmm. anyway, those went in tears. I get up. I said, I can't. I'm thinking, and I'm an I'm a real Beatles fan at this point. I'm listening to Abbey Road a thousand times. I'm going, yeah. how could that, how could our album be better than that? <laughs> Are you kidding? No, I was a, a semi-embarrassed. I was thrilled that we got. Hey, you're happy, but yeah. Right, right. So as we're walking toward the stage and Louis Armstrong is there to ha you know, hand out the award, someone, I slow down and someone bumps into me from behind. It's Garcio. I haven't seen him since he walked out going, this is great. When do we start the next record? And I went, I don't think that's gonna happen. No, nah, too little, too late. No, no, the band had already come to me. I, 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 I didn't hustle my way to be a producer. The band came to me and said, "Man, you did this record. You might as well do the next one." Yeah. So that was it. Well, I'm telling you, one of the things I think we should talk about is uh, the musicianship that existed in that band. Well, is... I'm gonna be a dick. Okay, a, go I'm ahead. A dick. Okay. There were some, and I won't mention names not very good players it helped us i know this sounds insane okay but if we had eddie gomez on bass if we had larry coriel on guitar if we had you know if 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 we had you know uh dave bargeron at the time on trombone dave bargeron it was great but the Monster. band would have, but the band would have been too slick the fact that these guys were not over the top helped that there was a little amateur going on Mm -hmm. It's a little rock and roll amateurism still there. If everyone was a jazz player and, you know, a, like, a, you know, it wouldn't have worked. I no. mean, the no. Soloff was a lead player and a great jazz player. It's ridiculous. Chuck Winfield was a great trumpet player, but he wasn't a soloist. And he right. Was, he just took second chair and he was happy. So, yeah. so, I mean, we had people, but there were some terribly weak links at the time. Which all the, and you understand the last band that I was in with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, percussion Don Elias, Don, yeah, guitar, guitar Mike Stern, yep. piano Larry Willis, mm -hmm. bass Jacko, excuse me, bass Jacko Pastorius, yeah. So I kept evolving the band to get the greatest musicians. The greatest musicians that doesn't always translate into record selling pop music. That's right. No matter how hard, as soon as you're dumbing down, as soon as a musician is playing under what he should be doing, you feel it. And when someone is like reaching for the sky, he may he miss every note, but you feel that too. Yeah. And that energy is really important. I mean, it's not tangible, but it is. Yeah. You feel it. And, oh, yeah. and I was, you know, I mean, the band evolved, but it but it evolved for a million reasons. I mean, and they thought, you know what? If I don't leave now, it's going to be too late. If I'm going to have a solo career, now, now's my moment. He didn't stay too long or not enough. I was never, I wasn't angry at all when he left. No, the I mean, career decisions, of, personal decisions. Hard part, the hard part was we have to maintain salaries. That's right. And we're looking for another singer. Right. <clears throat> I, here are my choices. Number one, Stevie Wonder. Couldn't get him out of Motown. Sure. But I thought his material would be perfect for the band. Number two... Laura Nero, she rehearsed with us. It sounded amazing, both on Columbia. I think Clive's going to be over the moon. Her manager said, this will never work after I told him he's not managing the band. Right? <laughs> so, but he did okay. David Geffen can pay his rent. So yeah, then, I think he can. <laughs> so so um, uh, uh, 
But we had a couple other things. There was a, a kid out of Michigan named Wagner who was kind of a John Lennon singer, really good though, and a really good, really good guitar player, which I thought would help us a little. And so it was between him and David. And 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 just David just if you listen to Bobby Blue Bland, I don't know if you're a big RB fan. Sure. But if you are, listen to Bobby Blue Bland and then listen to David and go, wait a minute. It's identical. Yeah, that's where it and, comes from. Right. And and he, you know, and if you're gonna copy someone, good choice. Mm, yeah. Because between him and Ray Charles, I'm in. Yep. And I envisioned whoever was gonna be had to be strong, but to replace David. We had auditions, and I won't say who it is. A guy walked in, it sounded exactly, maybe better, but exactly like David, but he didn't look it. He ended up being a gigantic star on his own, changed his name, et cetera. But at the time, and his look and everything, I just said, we can't have another singer sounding like David. It, it's a, And it just got to a point where we had to get a singer, and we got someone who was just such a nice guy, you know, it, it, he, like he would sing and he looked straight up into the sky. He like he didn't understand the performance, although he performed where he came from. He, like he wasn't he, he wasn't a give me the mic, get out of the way. guy. You got to work the crowd. Yeah. No, he, he did. So because he was nice, but but he didn't have that command, Yeah, which a band like this has to have. Sure. And it's been decades to try and find a replacement. The funny thing is. I'm doing an album, I don't know, like No Sweat album, like a later album, and I'm in Studio E at Columbia Records with an engineer named Tim. I should remember his last name. Very nice guy. And, and so, so I'm in the studio, and someone says, you got a call. I go, here? How would they know I'm here? I pick up. I go, hi. I said, Hello. I hear you're looking for a singer. I said, no, we, we have a singer. Well, you got to keep me in mind. I said, okay. I said, how old are you? 16. And I'm thinking, how does this guy get my number? This is amazing. You start right there, right? And I said, you know, one day we'll meet. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be nice to the kid, hang up. Years later, I'm doing, you know, my Entertainment Tonight interviews. It was, it was a gig I had for a few years. And I'm with this guy who is a wonderful singer. And he said, you probably won't remember my phone call. I went, what are you talking about? It was Steve Perry. <laughs> ah, from Journey. Oh, man. But yeah. But yeah. He would have yeah, been great. Would have been great, right? I but don't you care if you're like, 16. Get your ass here. Yeah, you got a squeaky sounding voice on the other end. No, he, 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 right? he, he was a, a monster. Singer. He was yeah, great. Yeah. No, but there's certain singers that have an identifiable sound that, uh, that a musicalist can be. And, you know, give you their interpretation of something. That's who this band has always needed. David could do that, especially since he was rooted in these wonderful players, in the, uh, the singers. Yeah, it was amazing. I got a, one thing I, well, you and I talked about this briefly, and it's the, uh, the influence that the band had on so many other people. So, you know, we well, talked about this. You and I are about seven years apart. When I was, this, I'm just going to say, I know. Go, yeah. Let me give you an example. Go ahead. I recently met an arranger, right, named Greg Curtis, who no, I had never heard of. He's a genius. He's amazing. And he says, well, I learned arranging by listening to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And try. Vince Mendoza is my favorite arranger. He said, when I was in high school, I arranged the Blood, Sweat, and Tears horn stuff. That's sort of how I got started. 
Saturday, I'm in a studio with someone. The engineer turns around and says, I got my start by arranging blood, sweat, and tears, horns. This is all within a very short time. It never stops. Yeah. The influence this band has had, not just on musicians, yeah. you know, but just generally the, the sound of music changed. Yeah. The idea that you could have other configurations other than a, a quartet with, a, you know, with, uh, the whole, everything changed. Everything changed. And we are forgotten, which is one of the most, a step, biggest band in the world, headline yes. Woodstock, changed music more than it. Go down the list of the, the, the Hall of Fame. Is, it's really, that's another whole separate you know, the, the, the thing. The Hall of Fame is a television show. You it's know, a TV so, show. Right. So you want people that are alive, not on walkers to perform. Right. You know, I, I get it. But we had they had gatekeepers, two people in particular, that were not fans of the band. We were too popular. They liked, you know, the inside shit. You know, it's like, great. But meanwhile, I expecting to be called. And I have friends that are involved that are, oh, everyone says every meeting, you guys are like, I can't believe we overlooked you. And now I look at it as a badge of honor because who's in there. And exactly. There's someone amazing, but there's a lot of people that haven't influenced the fly. Yeah. Had no, had no impact on music. They were just popular in the moment and cool and looked interesting, wore a good hat. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you just from my own perspective, when I, I was in high school, and our high school didn't have a jazz band. There was no such thing back then. So myself and a couple other guys, we start to put it together. And what do we do? We run out and we get the book Sounds and Scores by Henry Mancini so we can figure out how to write charts because we're dumbasses. We don't know crap, right? Nice start. Yeah, yeah, it's a good start. But then yeah. we start listening to what you guys are doing. And I'm going, yeah, but see, see, this is what we want. This well, is what we contemporary. want. Contemporary. Yes. And you start listening to the voicings that were coming out. The trombone. The trombone's not sitting down here. It's sitting up here. And you're listening Sometimes. to, you yeah. got the, you got ninths and you got thirteenths and you got, I said, wow, this is, this stuff kills. I and love, it was inspiring. I, we were inspired love, by it. I love the guys in Chicago. Find me an arrangement where they're not playing unison. Oh, I know. It's a whole different, a whole different thing. Whole it's, different it, thing. So I love it, but to compare them to us, no, it makes no sense. You could pick no. any band and compare it. The fact that they have horns, and they have great—they have not one; they have three great singers. Great. I mean, they they had all kinds of stuff yeah. going for them, and 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 they were a fun, great band. But it had nothing to do with us. It couldn't have been further. They were fans of our band. They used to come to gigs, and you know, Danny would ask if he could sit behind me, you know, like when I was playing at a festival or something. And they would always say, how'd you get musicians this good? I said, well, we looked, we looked for them. We weren't friends from the neighborhood. Yeah. I was amazed. I mean, you know, I take, I, today, what I do is I try to tell people, and uh, there are some guys now who are teaching in schools. And I said, you know, there's, there's a way that you want to teach. And this, the, what you guys did, what your band did is important. They need to deliver that message because you look at, there's an underlying function there. You had a great rock foundation with the players that you had okay yep. but then you had all these guys that were unbelievable soloists like soloists. lou oh yeah. lou unbelievable right fred we I had mean, randy brecker randy brecker in the earliest I mean, days and he doesn't play i mean just, just... Yeah, you didn't even give him a chance right but you start listening to the stuff lou's doing and then as you said you get later on dave bargeron I and mean, this guy's got a five octave range on trombone he's and insane tuba. And, and tuba, tuba. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, the musicianship and putting all that stuff together, it's so inspiring. And guess what? It was only nine guys. You know, it doesn't have to be an 18-piece big band. Well, eight eight guys playing. Well, eight guys playing, yeah. But yeah. David, David actually, when he played guitar, when he played his stuff, the blues-oriented stuff, yeah, it's fabulous. If you listen to Go Down Gambling, Go Down Gambling, that's all David. That's David, yeah. And they voiced his solo. Da da da, da da da. That's David's solo. They just voiced it out. Yeah. Da 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 da. da, da, da. It was great, you know. Yeah. So. No, it, it's it's uh, it's amazing stuff. But uh, you know, uh, the third and fourth albums, I thought that stuff was great. But what do you want? Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the the uh, the film, the documentary? All day long, if you want. Okay, because um, I, the, the documentary, I'll let you introduce it, but I had a chance to see this and it's just an unbelievable thing. So I'll let Bobby tell you a little bit about this because this is amazing. I'll start with saying, if anyone gives a damn, write down B-S-T-D-O-C. Let's go into his documentary. B-S-T-D-O-C.com. Go to a site and it'll say, watch the trailer. Press that. Look at the trailer. And it gives you a setup of what this is about, okay? Now, I will give you how this thing evolved. Again, uh, two different narratives. My my take of this was a friend of mine asked me to come to a screening of a very early version of a John Coltrane documentary. And his name is Scott Pascucci, the wonderful guy. He ran Concord, ran all, I mean, he's a brilliant guy, lawyer more creative than people know anyway so so he he uh he said you know would you come to the screening i did and then but it was a very early version and he said there's not a lot on coltrane there's not a lot of footage there's not a lot of no interviews no live no nothing but but this guy john scheinfeld has you know he's on to something and i love coltrane obviously I, I used to hear him when the place there was no one there but me seriously yeah everyone said Oh, jazz was robust. Everyone was into it. I'd be in, I'd be in clubs with. I mean, I was f- arguably one yard away from from the bell of his tenor. Yeah, saying to myself, "I ain't wrong. This is unbelievable." Yeah, and, yeah. and Elvin's there. I'm going and, and McCoy. I'm saying this is this is too good to be true. And sometimes there's more guys on the stage than there are in the audience. That's pretty right. much what happened a lot. Yeah, yeah. So so anyway, um, so back to the the the, the doc. So he said to me, like, could you like could you meet with the guy if you have any ideas of other things? John's the, like the directors, his the way he looks at it is I saw the movie finished. I was so blown away that I said, Who is this guy? Give me his number. I want to talk to him about something. That's not the way I remember it. <laughs> I remember what I'm saying. Right. And I and I loved what he ended up with. I'm not taking anything away from it. It was fantastic. But when I met with him, it was more. I'm thinking of who he could interview maybe that he didn't have yet. What, you know, because, because I knew Elvin, you know, well, mm-hmm. I'm thinking maybe there's some angle here. I, I could give some, you know, be helpful. But in the middle of our lunch or dinner or whatever it was, he goes, I was such a fan of Blood, Sweat and Tears. I said, oh, thanks. And he goes, what the hell happened to Blood, Sweat and Tears? And I went, <laughs> so long. and I'm not there to tell thinking there's a doc coming. I, right. I'm not going. What had happened is a week before that dinner, a friend of mine named Rupert Perry, or two weeks before, I had told him the story. 
And Rupert's a wonderful executive, wonderful friend. He used to play drums. He was a fan. And and he said, what happened? And I told the story. I said, we had to do a tour behind the Iron Curtain. And it was filmed. And it killed us because it was State Department sponsored. And the left wing was anything anti-Nixon, anything anti-war Vietnam, as were we. Right. But our singer has a, had a problem with his with his green card because we were all talking against the war. And I think some right wing extremist said, who is this Canadian think he is with eating off the fat of our land? And they find out he had a jail record and they pull this green card. So he can't play in the United States anymore. Yeah. We have a number one album. We can't play in America. So we have this new manager, he know, he, I think, you know, again, he, he died, so I don't know the details, but he knew someone, I guess, or his wife knew someone. And he ends up in a conversation with the State Department, who at the time, knowing we're the biggest band in the world, thinking, man, if we could, if we could give this band as a gift to some of these countries behind the Iron Curtain that, that Russia had invaded already, that you were some feeling their freedom a little bit, others under the, the weight of communism. Right. It was, I mean, we played in three countries, Yugoslavia and Romania and Poland, distinctly different countries, completely different. And, but we saw communism up in our face. Guys sitting there waiting with the machine guns as oh, you no, get no, off no. the plane. This Crazy spies, what, spies watching us, people scared yeah. to talk to us. Yeah, uh, they're sending dogs into the crowd in Romania because they're re responding too well to blood, sweat, and yeah, tears. Having too they much fun. Know, they don't know our name, but they know USA, and they're chanting USA. Oh yeah, and yeah. this is not something that the authorities were thrilled. Anyway, this is yeah. all covered. So there was a film crew. So I tell my friend Rupert Perry, they actually filmed this thing, and there was some version came out. It was not. You know, like in my mind, since I was the band leader, when the film company said it was independent company, we want to shoot this. I said, good and bad news. If you're paying for it, if the government approves, fine. But just FYI, if I don't like it, it doesn't come out. I'm not signing off on this thing if I don't like it. Right. Oh, yeah, we're confident. We're Anyway. So in the movie, it's discussed in detail. But just generally, they ended up like the government took away tons of the stuff, told them to edit it more. Edit it, it was going to be a two-hour movie, and edit it more. And this poor guy, who this was his first time directing, he became one of the great editors in Hollywood, one of the nicest people in the world. He's in the movie. He, he, and he passes away like three months after like he does his interview. And he was an amazing, sweet man. And he was disappointed because he, you know, everything was taken away. By the government said, no, 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 it's got to do this, do this, do this. Anyway, so my friend Rupert, back to that story, says, this is an unbelievable story. Where's the movie? And I said, I have no idea, man. This is prior to COVID. Right. This friend is Gary Dartnell, who used to run Thorn EMI Films. Very connected in the business, knows everyone. Sure. He tells Gary, Gary looks through Warner Brothers. They don't see anything. Looks so paramount, can't see anything. And he comes back to Rupert saying, that film ain't around. But there was a, virgin fl a version floating around that looked like it was shot with a camcorder from a television set. It was like terrible version. Yeah. 
but it was something, you know, that I that I remember. And Lusolov's daughter uploaded it after he died. So it was on YouTube for like five minutes. After my dinner with Rupert, I said, I, I, I went home. I said, Rupert, it's it's on YouTube. I mean, it's long since gone, but I said, right. it's there. So cut to my lunch or dinner with John. What the hell happened? I tell him the story. He says, where's the film? Because he said, he, you know, he he understands what this could mean. And I went, I have no idea. So COVID hits. He ends up finding, you know, I tell the story ad nauseum, but I'm going to say it again. If you or your wife or anyone you suspect is cheating on you, don't get a detective. Hire a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> they are way better than any detective you are ever going to find. John Scheinfeld and his crew found stuff out of the government in my room downstairs I didn't know I have. He found, so he's he's talking to a woman who has access to the MGM vault, but she's at home because it's COVID. And she looks on a computer and it's not there. She says, no, we don't have it either. And then one day, she was a fan of the band, he said. She's looking through some like loose leaf thing and she sees it. And she calls John, she goes, John, there are two copies. I have here, but it's not. And they were ready to uh, to be destroyed. They're all marked. The audio, all that stuff oh, was to be destroyed. I mean, oh, so, I mean, for for space. So luckily enough, she goes in. She finds it. She goes, "I have a pristine copy. It was, it's never been shown." And John jumps on it, and now he knows he has a documentary. The the funniest part of the story. I said, "What will this cost to do?" He's all excited, and he tells me. And I said, it's conceivable I can scrounge up that money. He goes, and I realized while I'm saying it, it becomes a Michael Jordan documentary. He paid for it. I'm thinking then it, it's wonderful, but it doesn't have the same. Because if it ends up that I'm a thief, it should come out. I'm a thief. I mean, whatever he, he, he discovers is really the point of a documentary. Right. That, you know what? I get it. You know, I, I'm okay with it. Two weeks later. John Demetrio, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, he runs Jazz Alley in Seattle. Mm-hmm. He gets in touch with my office saying, the, a guy, Don, you probably know who it is, some guy that owns a drum store in Seattle, Yep, is trying to get in touch with me, but he doesn't want to give the guy my home number or email. So he right. just calls it into my office. Yep. My office calls me and I said, so what's the, uh, you know, what's the story on this? And he says, uh, well, he said, I've got a guy that is this this gigantic fan of Los Guantiers, and he he's, he collects memorabilia. Now, again, if you ask this guy the story, he's got a completely different story, mm-hmm. except I have someone to verify mine because that guy was on the phone with us. Right. Anyway, so he finds this guy that likes to collect, calls me. I give him a number to call. The three of us are now on the line. He introduces me, and I hear... Bobby Columbia, I can't believe I'm talking to Bobby Columbia. And he introduces me. This is James Bryan. And I, and I go, James Bryan, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to James Bryan. She's not laughing. He said, Bobby, I want to, I'm a fan and I want to buy. And he's from Oklahoma. Wonderful guy. Bright, amazing guy. But I don't know him at this point. And he says, Look, uh, I want to buy, you know, whatever you have. And I said, James, just let me have your address. I'm not selling anything. Just give me your address. 
as you know from Muffler. I don't I don't sell things. So I, <laughs> as I know from when we yeah, recovered yeah. the Woodstock kit, which is a really great story That's in and of very, itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you continue. So, okay, okay. So 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 I tell so I tell um uh I tell him, just give me your address. No, I want to buy. I want to remember. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm a lawyer. I said, you're a terrible lawyer. Why are you negotiating against yourself? I said, give me your damn address. And we said, well, <laughs> he said, no, but I, but I want to buy. I said, I, I'm not going to sell anything. Give me your address. We said, I said, James, what do you do? What's your story? He said, I was with ProServe, which was a sports agency. Yep. Was an age sports agent. I said, who'd you represent? I love basketball. I said, who did you represent? Nick Van Exel. And he figures this guy doesn't know it. And I right. go, I said, I think I was at the quarterfinals when he scored 32 points in the first half while he was playing for Cincinnati. I thought, man, that guy should be a Laker. That guy could really play. He goes, you know him? I said, yeah, I, of course I know. And he goes, oh. So we start talking basketball. It's so much fun. At the end of the call, I said, so what are you doing now? I finance films. <laughs> I said, gonna, Bingo. I said, I got a phone number for you. I think five <laughs> minutes later, it was financed. And uh, I just, James, you got it. I said, I'll give you a number on the one condition. What? You don't have any recommendations. Let the guy do his job. It's what he does. Yeah. Just be a producer, help when needed, be a part of the program, enjoy what's going on, but don't tell him what to do. Because if, if, because if that's what you plan to do, I ain't giving you his number. And he said, no, he, he knew. He said, no, no, I'm never. And he was he was the best producer, the best person you could have had on this project of anybody. He was fantastic. He's you let the pro do their jobs. You let the people yeah, who know yeah, what their yeah. job is, let them Absolutely. do their jobs. But yeah. he's a lovely, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Well, that's great. Well, I mean, the documentary is so amazing on many levels. Uh, and part of it is, and we had this conversation before, when in the first nine minutes of the documentary, when we're talking about all of what's going on and you're looking at what's going on behind the Iron Curtain and all of the issues that were being raised in this country and the like, I, I, I said, I picked up the phone, I called you, I said, you know, this is like watching the news last night. That's in all exactly, these years, that's we learned nothing, of, right? Steve, it's one of the takeaways. Yes, absolutely. And, and to me, a profound takeaway because it you is. realize... The Russians are invading. Hmm, that's interesting. What else? Yeah. The extreme left and the extreme right are idiots and they're yeah. screwing everything up for everybody. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm thinking, this is very familiar. And John put together a, the best, really interesting people that were, you know, that are scholars that really understood what was going on at the time. And the movie is the last thing you think it's going to be. When someone says, hey, it's a documentary about blood, sweat, and tears. Bingo. 80% is not a documentary about blood, sweat, and tears. That's right. 80% is a political thriller. It is. The and 20% is what I care about, which is, I want to remind people how good this band was. Oh, and, 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 no, but and, that's, and, and it accomplishes that. You know? It does. And you know what people forget today? Okay, today we're in the digital world. Everything's digital, download, stream this, do that, boom, bomb, bing. You guys, the sound quality on those and that concert from that concert, it's ridiculous. And guys, nope. there is no digital. There, this is the live performance. Now, is sick. It goes what it goes further. What we could have done is taken all those analog analog tapes, which were very well recorded. I was lucky, you know. Yeah. But we could have 
now could convert to digital and then over overdub horn parts, overdub other oh, fix vote, do any what you're hearing is exactly what we played. That's exactly right. There's you don't no need other, to hear the fix, you don't need to fix anything. When you hear Crosby Stills and Nash at Woodstock, I don't think there's one note that they actually sang at Woodstock. You know, I'm, I'm saying because you have the opportunity to fix things and right. it wasn't digital, but they went, oh, my God. So it was their first performance. Yeah. So we got to go back and fix it. Yeah. And if we're going to put this out, we better fix it, which is what anyone in their right mind would do. Right. But this there was no fixing. This was it. And when you listen to this thing and it's actually out on Omnivore Records, you can listen to it now. Omnivore is a label and they stepped up and they said, we want to put this out. Well, that's good. As is. As is. And also John Scheinfeld. Bless his heart. He comes to me. He says, "You got to write the score." I said, "John, I don't read music." <laughs> Although when I work with artists, I sing parts, I arrange, I do the stuff that people usually notate, but I just do it by whistling. Yeah, or, you know. And I've always had someone in my life that I could lean on. It gets me. Here's what I hear when I don't when I can't play the chord, and I'm going. It, it should have these, and then they'll play it and go, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. They sort of know my taste or whatever it is. And Dave Mann, who's out of New York, who is an excellent tenor player, he's he's one of those guys for me. Now, there was a guy in a band known to you as Mr. Mister, but I worked with them when they were called Pages. And their piano player, Steve George, was that guy for me at that time. Yeah. I could lean on him. On that. He knew exactly what it was in my head all the yeah. time. It was great. So... Anyway, um, uh, so I just said, I don't want to do it. I'm not qualified. Get someone who can do this. He says, no, I want the same guy that put this band together. I want the same guy. that Because every every guy in this band thinks he's the one that created the band. And then just look at the careers before and after the band and tell me where jazz is included anywhere. Yeah. Or where they, you know, I'm just saying, this has been my life before and after Blood, Sweat and Tears. Nothing has changed. So, you know, I mean, to say if I did or not influence the band, was I not an important part of this thing? I remain silent. Just look at my track record, look at what I've done and look at what the other people have done. They were wonderful. But when they start claiming that they did everything, it gets a little dodgy, you know, to prove is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, I, the the whole thing with the documentary, it was wonderful. And uh, I think you're still trying to work on a scenario for uh, streaming scenario so that it will be more widely available. Well, three years ago, every streaming service would have been knocking our door down. COVID brings people, people stay home. They start subscribing to every, I subscribe to Acorn, British television, whatever. Yep. I became addicted to like, I, I was home. So I'm watching Doc Martin. I'm watching, and I called I called Martin Offler, who's a friend. And I said, have you ever seen Doc Martin? And he looked at me and said, are you a housewife? I said, no. He goes, what are you doing watching this thing? It's it's for dweebs or whatever he called them. And I said, I got nothing else to do. I love it. Are you kidding? No, it's great. It. it was absolutely wonderful for me. I wanted to move to Cornwall. It was Oh, this stuff, uh, British TV is the best TV going. Fabulous. Fabulous. So, but what happened is these streaming services got fat. They start hiring. Everyone's subscribing. COVID ends. The economy takes a little bit of a dive. What's the first thing people do? They go, what am I paying for? I don't need to pay for. Why am I buying? Honey, what do you do on Hulu? Nothing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Goodbye. And they start unloading, unsubscribing. 
and they're firing 25% of their staff. Disney stock went down 10% because the streaming services took such a dive. Sure. So all of them at this moment are scared to lift a finger to do anything. Yep. So when I talk to these, and they're some really lovely people I've been talking to who I guess I know through over the years or have very good friends that know them. And they're giving me out of respect, I guess, you know, half an hour of, you know, you, it'll get lost here. And, you know, there's no money and we're letting people go and no one cares about music docs anymore. And with that, right. And our marketing is different, you know, it's algorithm. And they're telling me all the stuff that I know. And I'm trying to be polite by not right. going, shut up. I know yeah. this. Yeah. Let's I've get, been there before. How about telling me that you're worried about your job because everyone's getting fired and you're scared to commit to doing anything. How about you're spending your life at work justifying your employment? It's different. I said, do you know how I've never done a thing in my life that anyone thought was a good idea. Having having a, at the time an eight-piece band with horns playing jazz, yeah, that's called a lab band. That's an experiment that stays in a lot in, in some some room somewhere. Yeah. Produce a bass player as your first production deal? A bass player? A bass player? Right. Are you out of your mind? Excuse me. I'm supposed to drop a band. My first gig is with Epic Records in 1977. And they're hinting, not, you know, like it was not in a memo or anything, but they're saying, and we would love to get rid of this band. It'd be great, but we got to, you know, maybe there's a pay or play. In a contract, there's a thing that says, take this specific amount of money, go away. Don't record. We'd rather not spend money recording because we don't believe we can do anything with you. We don't want to spend money marketing or like producing uh, hard copies and just take the money and run, you know? Yeah. And it was in this band's thing and I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I, I just, you know, I'm just starting a gig, a day gig. And I'm thinking, you want me to drop a band and tell them your families are screwed forever? Try and get another gig? Oh, yeah. Like, like try and be signed after you dropped, not so easy to do. No. And 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 they had a string of nothing going on and no credibility and a cartoon show. I think, oh my God, they're dead. But I sat with them and I said, well, first I I walked in with an attitude, I'm not gonna let I'm I'm I, I just can't do it. There's got to be something here. So a producer, if these are the best things an artist can do, right? And these are where the artist is not so great. This is your job. Stay away from this. Yep. Help help them in here. Yep. So I recognized what I thought they needed. I got the right people involved. And I, I knew that I knew they needed credibility. So I tried to get them to write as much as possible. Although in the past, no one ever, ever asked them to write. They or or they wouldn't do their songs. And I just got the right people involved and made the record. And I go to my first AR. A&R, artist and repertoire. I have a friend who said, no, A&R stands for always wrong. So, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm in a meeting and the staff of people that I'm working with hate the record. They're telling me it stinks. I never should have made it. Now I'm their boss, I'm the, but I don't behave that. I mean, I'm the vice president of, the, of that department, but I'm, I'm not going to be, you, everyone listen to me. I, you know, I'm a muso. My head's in the, you know, really going into the recording studios all the time. So, and so, so the record comes out. This band I'm supposed to drop. And everyone's saying, terrible, loser, no priority. No one should look at this thing. The first single is written by a person 
of a different race from a different nationality, but the same last name. So I could say all songs written by the same name, but it's not part of this group. Anyway, but the song I heard, a guy in my staff, like the late great Mike Atkinson, he he said, hey, boss, I got this song. And he played it for me. I go, this is the number one record for this band that I'm about to go in the studio with. We're in business. This is great. And you should come with me. He's never seen a record made. I said, well, you're an A&R guy. Sit with me and learn how to do this thing, right? So I I, I gave he, he and myself executive producer credit. I produced the, the record. I got paid for it. But I thought the band needed the credibility produced and written by, you know, just so they, oh, they're grown up. I, I thought it would help them. So the first single comes out. It's in England. It's a smash. The next single, which, and, and they did not expect this. The next single in America, an R&B promotion guy calls me and says, you got a smash here. I went, what? And he names a song that in its inception was 20 minutes long and one chord and one bass line. And that's all I got at the beginning thinking, what am I going to do with this? Right. Oh my God, am I screwed? But it <laughs> evolved. And I just started hiring arrangers to put anything and everything into this one chord track because it was so it was dull it just kept and then the singer comes in and goes and i do know that i love you it's all dissonant but it's all dissonant and then the chorus let's dance let's shout shake your body onto the ground it's jackson it's the band they wanted me to get rid of <laughs> and the first single was written by Mick Jackson is Blame It on the Boogie. Oh the man. Brings them back to life. Oh, that's amazing, man. So what a no story. No one thought that was a good idea either. So I'm just saying you have to, whoever's listening to this that is in any field, any field, if you have a vision, the only way you're gonna know if you have the goods is to see it through. Yeah. See it through. Go it's through the vision, go to the end of it. And if you if you fail ten times and you bring down the, the whole Titanic, it's not a good shipbuilder. It's probably not good with icebergs, and, and you know. But I'm just saying, you won't know until you try. That's and I right. learned really early in my life because people would always say that's not going to work, and I went, that's that's opportunity. When no one else sees it, that means you're stepping into an open area. Yeah. I used to tell people to say, oh. I had this idea, but everyone thought of it already. Do you know when they put wheels on luggage? Yeah. 1910, 1884. No, the 1980s. They didn't have wheels on luggage. You'd buy a car, like a cart. You'd buy stuff. They never figured out yeah. how to put wheels on luggage. And that's why I tell you, say to people, when you think it's been done, think about that. That's a perfect example of actually don't don't be afraid. You know, just see it through and then try not to say I told you so to everybody and and, and just be, you know, humble and say, yeah, in your brain go, I gotta stick with you know my ideas. No. Yeah, it's important. People what I've always done in my business is a niche market, and people used to say to me, what you're trying to do isn't supposed to work. And I said, that's just fine. That's fine and dandy. That's an opportunity. Oh, that means opportunity. And that's I will make it work. Yeah. 
yeah. I've got the confidence in myself and that <clears throat> I can make it work. Those are the things you want. And yeah. it's an important thing. It's a great message. I really think the 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 whole point of the and just one more thing from from me at least on the documentary what you said is exactly right it's 80 percent uh of a, of a historical documentary and 20 percent about the band right. and that historical documentary is so important that that's got to it's got to come to the light so of day through why, so i'm talking to some of these guys one one guy in particular was an unbelievably nice guy and he he's with a very large streaming service and he and it turns out when we had this call plan they hadn't even seen it yet no one sent him a link but he's already telling me how it, it you know it's gonna be very difficult and they don't have money anymore and but the guy plays drums he's a fan of my he's a sweetheart of a guy and 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 the woman on the call was also lovely but they're already telling me why they can't do it i'm thinking you haven't seen it yeah and then i finally get to our conversation we just had i said you've got to believe in something you have to say yeah I, i've got all the algorithm excuses how about coming, how about saying, this is really important. I'm going to yeah. put my reputation on this, win, lose, or draw. That's I right. Believe in this. And I told him that. I said, that you, you know, you got you, you have to learn. You have to learn not to be afraid. You know, it was a, there's an important thing. Before I left to do the music business on my own, I spent 30 years in corporate businesses and I ran companies. And one of the things that was really interesting, I learned in my early days there, one of the guys I worked for was a very, very, he was a genius in many ways in how he nurtured people. And one day I went to him and I said, Bob, you know, it seems to me that what you're looking for in your managers is people will come up to you and say, hey, Bob, you know, here's, here's something that we're going to do. And I said, what you tell them, well, I don't like it. And they go scurrying out of the room. I said, what you're looking for is for you to, people to say, Bob, this is what we're doing. I'm just letting you know. And if he says, if you say you don't like it, and you go, Bob, I like it. And I think we're going to make it work, and I'll be responsible for it if it doesn't. And that's where it hits. That's where it goes in the tank. Too many people don't want to take accountability. I want to do it. I believe in it. I'll take responsibility for it. And people won't do that today. There's, I, <clears throat> when I started working with Epic, which is CBS Records, they offered me a chance to go to a senior management course, and I love stuff like this. Of course, there was not another person from the music business there. But I said, yeah, I'm in. I want to go. So I flew back to Long Island, and it was fantastic. And they were teaching MBO, management by objective. Let me tell you how that works. So let me get a blank piece of paper. Well, I don't have to. I'll just do it with my hands. You have a corporation. This level of people, they all work together. Here's their boss. Every six months or more, they have meetings with their boss. Their boss says, here's what I expect of you. Can you do it? And if you can't, tell me now, and I'll either lower my expectations or help you get to what I want. And we'll have regular meetings to know. So then this group meets with this group. They do exactly the same thing all the way to the top. But what happens is part of the plan is this group writes and fills out forms that goes to this group about how they're doing. Are they helping you? Are they good at what they do? Are you having good or bad experiences? No names. Just tell us what you feel. 
Mm -hmm. This group can manage this one better because it's getting some feedback. It's right. called management by objective. And I thought, this is brilliant. This is how you should run every company. This is right. No one's ever going to be left in the dark. No one's going to not know what's going on, especially any company that has satellites where you always feel like you're not, you know, and time changes and you feel like I'm not there and I'm paranoid. No, you're constantly meeting. You're, you, you're saying, so were you able to do the five things? No, why? You tell them, you go, you know what? You're right. Let me help you with that. So there's a constant flow of information. No one's left in the dark and everyone's meeting their object objectives. Yeah. So it's called yeah. management by objective. It's a great, so this idiot, when I'm finished with it, this is 1977 or 78, I go back to CBS Records and go, I've got a great way how we should run our business. How do you think that went? Oh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, you gotta love it. You know, you mentioned the bass player and for those people who don't know, that bass player was Jocko. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jocko Pastorius, the phenomenal, phenomenal musician, sad story at the end of his days, but a wonderful, wonderful player, so creative, such a giant. How did that come about with you, okay. with Jocko? Again, history, I'll give you exactly what happened, but you know, you have documentaries and people telling stories. I'm going, I was there. That's not what happened. You yeah, know? Yeah. 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 So it's okay. So my band is playing at Bachelors Three, I think it's called, in Fort Lauderdale. And this is the band already with Larry Willis. And, you know, I mean, I mean it's a strong band. And the bass player is Ron McClure, who just came from the Keith Jarrett trio, the yep. Jackie Jeanette. Not like he was a lightweight. He was wonderful. Mm. My problem with Ron, and this had nothing to do with Jocko in the immediate, but I'll explain how it happens. Ron had a big mustache. And when Ron played bass, he played like this. He was so intense, but we're performing and the audience is looking at, and when I die, and, oh, oh, looking at a guy that is, that looks like he's in pain. So I say, Ron, is there any way that you, that it, that you can look different than as if someone is driving a nail into your leg? Is there any way? And he goes, I know, I'm really sorry. I know I look terrible when I play. I said, it's really distracting. It's tough, not only for the audience, but for me. You're yeah. putting your ass off, but I'm looking at a guy who's miserable. He goes, no, I love the gig. I go, I know. Is there any way you can kind of transmit that somehow? Yeah. Anyway, but he's a great player and a great guy. Anyway, so we're playing down in, in, in Fort Lauderdale. And the club says, any, asked me, because I was friendly, hey, can you play softball? We have a game. Like our club has a club team and we're short a player. I said, yeah, I can play softball. Said, great. Okay. I said, I don't have my glove with me, but no, no, we do. I said, great. All set. So we're playing a softball game. I'm in the out. I'm playing left field. Center field is a blonde, very, very cute girl. She has her hands. And at that time, the women's sports weren't as evolved, certainly as today. Mm -hmm. And when you saw a woman in the outfield go, hey, batter, 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 it was like, whoa where'd that come from you know? <laughs> so we go into the dugout and i say who are you she goes what do you mean i said are you involved in the club she goes yeah i work at the club i said seriously she goes yeah yeah what do you do i'm, I'm a waitress she's really curious i've never seen you she goes no I'm, I'm married i have two kids i go home after that i said ah and pause 
to the best bass player in the world. <laughs> it's exactly what she says. And I say, that is really nice. I hope if I get married one day, my wife thinks I can play drums. I'm certainly not the best, but it's very nice that you feel that way. I was just being an idiot. Right. She goes, no, he really is. And then I turn on the New York arrogance and I go, if I go to your house right now, what's on your turntable? She goes, giant steps. Yep. I go, okay. Okay. Yeah, it could work. No, no, no. It wasn't enough. I'm still, <laughs> I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll now. I said, really? If I go to your house and I listen to Giant Steps with you, can you tell me when every chorus ends on the solos? She goes, yeah. I went, I got to meet your husband. Next day, this skinny guy in shorts and sandals, these plastic glasses, long, big, long hands shows up. And he goes, hi. And I said, how you doing? I'm Jocko. I said, Thank you. Okay. I'm Tracy's husband. I said, oh, you're the greatest bass player in the world. He said, I am. I went, fantastic. Can you play basketball? He said, I'm like John Havlicek. It's exactly what he said. John Havlicek was a Boston Celtic at the time. Boston Celtics. He was a six man, but he was a fantastic player. Yep. And he said, I'm like, I'm, I'm like John Havlicek. And I went, can you get a game for me? He said, I'll do it tomorrow. I said, I'd love to play in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we play ball together, and he is not John Havlicek at all and as we're leaving i say to him i hope your bass playing is a lot better than your basketball playing if you're the best in the world he goes oh it is it is i went oh good that night is our last night gigs over he he shows up and i went oh do you have your bass he goes yeah i said i said go get it so okay i tell the roadies leave like leave the bass amps up as they're tearing down yeah so not shy. He plugs in and he starts playing. Now, there's a guy in New York named Jeff Berlin who is a fantastic bass player who could yes. probably do everything that I'm hearing. But I just didn't hear it all in one moment. He starts playing these harmonics, random harmonics, but he had he had some licks that he had been playing for people for years in 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 no in no particular order. He was just playing these these harmonics. And then he starts playing Donna Lee which yeah. is a Charlie Parker song. He starts playing Charlie Parker solo. Yeah. Which Bass is players right. normally would go, I mean, they're picking, they're playing, right. He's playing it like a tenor saxophone. I'm hearing, and since it's fretless, it's expressive, and he is playing it like, not like a bass. So I'm hearing these harmonics that sound like a Fender Rhodes and a bass player. I'm hearing a guy playing flawless. And, you know, usually there's some time lag between the idea and the execution. Most musicians that aren't really good, you feel that because there's a, a little bit of a lag, like they're coming up with what they want to play. Right. But people that don't have to think about it because it's walking, talking, breathing, playing, there are a few of those. Hendrix was one of those, for sure. When I heard him play, I went, I mean, when he was Jimmy James, he, he was unique to that. Because I hadn't heard a lot of guitar players that could do that, except for a guy named Joe Beck in New York, who was great. But that was it. I didn't know anyone else in New York that could play like that. Anyway, and then and then and Jocko. I said, man. And I just love what he did. And I'm thinking, I got to do a record with this guy. Now, I have a deal with Epic. Epic even though I was signed to Columbia, I knew all those people. They were all former La Columbia Records, like promotion people, et cetera. And they came to me 
and said, we don't want you producing elsewhere. So would you like to have a production deal with us? And I don't know shit about shit. I go, sure, why not? You know, well, good. You have a production deal with us. You sign what you want to sign and we'll make it. Okay. So I think, you know, I can get, I, I'm going to do it with him. So I call up Jim Tyrell and Steve Popovich. Steve Popovich is, is the head of A&R, makes all the musical decisions. And the marketing guy is Jim Tyrell. I used to play with Jim Tyrell. He's a bass player and a good one. He was oh, an yeah. marketing guy. And we used to do like bar mitzvahs or something. You know, he could play. And, and, and Steve Popovich out of Cleveland could play a little bass. So I'm telling two bass players, I want to do a record with a bass player. And they're thinking, I have lost my mind. Yeah, you're and nuts. Said, you're out of your mind. And I said, no, but don't worry. Next is, a, it's, is I'm going to get an accordionist. It's, I'm going to do all the instruments. And they're going, this guy's really lost his mind. And I go, no, 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 it'll be fun. I, I, I promise it'll be fun. Okay. So I bring him in. Uh, and Jocko knows Don Elias. And he goes, just the two of us will just play and audition. I, I didn't have to audition because I could do anything I wanted. But I wanted them to hear him. And they were like, great, but... Steve, you're going to do a record with a bass player. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you thinking? So this is to me, if I were to teach production, this would be part of my, you know, real curriculum. Someone wants to make a record. Why? I know you got music. Why do you want to make a record? You got music. Play it. For your parents? show off to your friends why do you want to make because i need to express what i have in mind in recording okay who's it for who's your audience uh no i mean who is going to listen to this oh okay how do you get to them what are you going to do musically to get to them now understand you got to answer all those questions before you start a record Sure. People never do. They just go in. I got songs, make a record. Yeah. I get an advance. I'll make money touring. But if you want to make a good record, you should be able to answer those questions. Sure. Certainly, if you want to make a, one that sells to some degree, you have to be able to answer those questions. With Jocko, here's what I thought. Well, I need to remember the things he did that made me go, holy smokes the harmonics, the fluid playing. He didn't have a lot of material, but I said, I got to make sure those are on the record. A guitar would get in the way. I just want bass. I say to Jocko, who do you like? What do you mean? What kind of music? He said, I like everything. I said, like what? Jazz. Who? Herbie, Chick. Okay, who else? Well, Caribbean music. Uh, you know, I like pants, steel drum stuff. I like classical. Who? Who? I'm going down the list. R&B. Who? Sam and Dave. Love Sam and Dave. They're my idols. I said, okay. So I'm collecting thoughts of don't limit this guy's music. If he likes all this stuff, let's get the best of what he can do in those areas. Don't worry about hit records. Forget that idea. All right. So when I was in college, I took a course, a course, course. I took a course in economics and the book, the textbook, everybody had Paul Samuelson's textbook. I'm thinking, what a business. This guy's smart. He's, this is the text. If you want art history, Helen Gardner, history of, of art. 
every school. Seriously. What, amazing. They're, everyone's saying, that's where to go. That's the book. That's, that's, you know. So I went, now I know what to do. I'm going to make the textbook for electric bass. That's how I'm going to sell this record. So I'm going to focus on the idea to display the wares, to display what his capabilities are, do it as musical as possible, be as, and so he moves into my house in New York where I have a recording studio. And we're doing random stuff all over the place where I had an engineer was there all the time and I would kind of wink to him when I wanted him to start recording when no one even knew I was recording. Like Jocko, like I sat with Jocko, I said, what are those harmonic things you play? You when I heard you, he goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, the, the, the harmonic stuff. He goes, you mean like, and I, yeah, just, and I look at the engineer. God. And he starts playing a series of these licks that he had been playing for years, right? And he, and he goes, okay. When he leaves, I edit together what I consider is a piece of music. Portrait of Tracy is what he calls it. Right. There are people in Florida that said, oh, he played that. And she goes, he played that for me for years. Well, go look at the tape. It's it's spliced together. It was never played as a piece of music. And so, and 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 if I was bullshitting or or if it was one of those guys, I would have taken publishing, which all these guys do. I would have stolen saying I wrote it right. with him. Right. You know, and I, I won't do that. So yeah. it's so I'm telling you for no other reason, that's what happened. Then he and Don start to just late at night. As if they were really in a trance, they and they just start playing for about twenty minutes. They're just going at it, and I and I give the engineer let's record this. It's just random. He's playing, you know, like like conga, and it's over. They oh man, they were laughing. They got tired, and the harmonics are coming out of this thing he's playing. But he's playing. And they, you hear the harmonics change, two melodies. It starts getting tired. It's a subtle thing. I'm going, this is so great. <laughs> and I say to Jocko, write a soli. Write a melody over this. And, well, I'm going to back a step. When I played him the song that became Portrait of Tracy, he's listening. After I put it together, he goes, this is bullshit. What is that? I go, it's mm. music. He goes, it's bullshit. And I go, Anytime you want an artist to buy into something, just just do another playback of them. They start liking it. He hears it again and he goes, go to the end. And he runs into the studio and adds one high harmonic to the last note. He does one over one over dub, and now it's great. Now it's great. Idea. You know, I go, great, it's all cool. So then I say, a horn solely. He writes a beautiful melody. I said, Roboto, don't worry about the time. Don't worry about it. it. Just It should sweep across the top of this thing because I wanted to use it. So we try Ira Sullivan. We try Wayne on Soprano. We try every, It never sounds right to me. And I go, and the man, the mood that I'm looking for is not there. And he goes, well, it's great. I go, there was a guy that played with Blood, Sweat, and Tears named Peter Gordon, a French horn player. If they could play anything. And he, you know, back then they used to divide low note guy specialist, high note specialist, and French horn. Never could do both. He did both equally great. So I brought him into my studio, and people, you know, they make the mistake of miking a French horn in the bell. It's supposed to be the front. It's like a soprano. You don't yeah. put a mic on, on the bell. It's in the. Yeah. It's up here. And so I put mics all over the room, and 
and he starts playing the melody. And I think it's absolutely gorgeous. So I'm putting together a record. In fact, there's one thing that Jocko wrote on his kid's toy, those little pianos that sound like little bells. Ding, ding, yeah. ding. He wrote this simple little melody. It was gorgeous. And I said, you know, I love that melody. He goes, yeah. And he had heard of or knew a great uh, arranger out of Boston because he was hanging out there. He already knew the Pat Metheny and stuff. And he had recorded with Pat already. And so, so I said, let's call this guy. And this guy, I forget, sorry about the name. It's fantastic. He wrote this, this 12 tone arrangement around this simple little baby melody. And I gave it to Herbie to play. Mm. It is so gorgeous. And Herbie at that time was doing a lot of Rhodes playing, not a lot of acoustic piano anymore. And people were so happy to hear him play acoustic on the album. And he, you know, it's Herbie Hancock. Chick yeah. was coming to play on the record too. I had these spontaneous ideas of having them hang out and do stuff. Chick's wife, Gail, calls me. Can you send some of the music in advance? I went, it's really not a lot of that. I, 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 you've got to trust me. She goes, okay, well, he's excited to play on your record. And I said, well, thank you. I, I think he'll like this guy. He goes, she goes, what guy? I said, what's well, a bass player? He goes, it's not your record? I said, no. I'm not doing a Bobby Columbia drum record. He goes, no, you wanted to play on that. I went, no, I would never do a record like that. He goes, who is it? Some bass, unknown bass player. He goes, no, no, Bobby, I'm sorry. No, 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 not coming. So that's the reason why he's not on the record. So, so, but I got Sam and Dave together. They hadn't spoken in years. Wow, and wow. I get them together and we're doing, it was so much fun. We just, you know, he was living in my house. I owned the studio. So, so it wasn't like hurry up and get out of studio here. Studio time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so could be really creative with the record. And I knew what I was looking for from the beginning. And I said, I want a textbook from this record. And when it was done, I remember doing a three minute like presentation for Epic Records for, for a convention. Like, how do you sell this guy, right? So I, yeah. so I did a musical, and it took me days, but I did a three-minute edit of the record that Steve Kahn heard and said, it's the best piece of music I've ever heard in my life. And I don't know where it is. I wish I could find it. It was, it was really <laughs> cool. It was like one piece of music from all the bits. From, from the bits. Oh, man. From the album. Anyway, that's kind of what happened. And then they make a documentary, and they say, everyone was dying to play with Jocko. No, no one heard of Jocko. I even heard him. Yeah, just like, you know, I mean, they were doing me a favor. They were showing up, you know, so. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Well, uh, what about, Bobby, move on a little bit, uh, current projects. I mean, are there things you're involved with now that you want to talk about beyond? I can't, you know? I can and can't. Um, uh, yeah, that's. I'm, I'm, I'm managing, a man, I, I, you know, I started managing at, at the behest of one, one guy that I was producing. He put a gun <clears> to my head, which we no longer work together after a long time. But now I am working with someone that I knew for a long time uh, that's wonderful by the name of Lucian Micarelli, the violinist. And I'm also working with Leonardo Amuedo. And the two of them, without me having anything to do with it, kind of got together. They come from different worlds musically, but they love playing together and they love mm. teaching each other stuff. And they want to play together. So like, we're actually booking them and it's fantastic. It's Lucia and Leo. No, it's really, really good. And then um, uh, Leo says, you know, my son is a drummer. He's going to Berkeley and he, and his best friend is this guy. 
named Jesus Molina. I said, yeah, and he goes, he's something else. I said, well, you know, coming from your mouth, yeah, yeah I'm sure he is. And every once in a while, I would look in, on, on YouTube and, and see stuff that Leo would do with his son and his piano player. Piano player was great. It was great. Very overweight guy, kind of losing his hair, but could play his ass off. And Leo is saying, you have no idea how good this guy is. You have no idea. Whatever. Then he calls me a few months ago, Leo, and says, he, Jesus has been calling me. He's heard too much about, like, do you have a meeting with him? I said, why? I said, I really don't want to, man I never wanted to, ma managing for me is like, I have someone I work with and does everything I don't, would never want to do as a manager. But, you know, I have to be creatively involved or I'm not interested at all in anything. Sure. So I meet this guy, Jesus. He's the, simply put, the most talented artist I have ever come across in my career. And you can include everybody. I knew every, I, I knew every, guy's a piano player and a singer and an arranger and a writer. And he's this humble religious kid from Colombia. He's 27 years old. And every time he sits down, and what I start finding out is when I mention his name to Billy Childs, but Billy Childs said, hey, Seuss, are you kidding? That guy's a beast. And I said, you know him? He goes, yeah, I had a class in Berkeley that I, that I was teaching. I, I taught and he was in the class and I heard him play. And my first qu thing I said as a teacher was, how did you play that? Billy <laughs> said he was asking, hey, Seuss, what the hell are you doing? How'd you do and that? All these people I'm introducing that they say, are you kidding? Everyone knows this guy. He's like, He's like amazing. And he he really is. He is. And his wife just gave birth to a child on Sunday, like three days ago, at 440 in the morning. He has a tattoo saying 440. For April. I mean, it's just and I so I'm doing that. Oh, that's wonderful, though. To find talent I, like that, to find somebody like that, then you can, no, you can help. No, I'm, I'm the most blessed, lucky person that ever walked on this planet. I give you example after example. I, you know, it, it's not like I'm I'm this uh, uh, aggressive guy that goes out hunting. I mean, I'm just lucky. Things, you know, just come across and, you know, and they work. So, but he is something else. So, so that's taking my time. I'm, I'm producing a project I can't mention. Okay. That's okay. It's, it's so wonderful. It's so well, wonderful. And I think it's going to come out finally because, because I had to do it during COVID. And so it was a lot of sending files to people right. and then uh, um, uh, saying, no, could you try this? And could you try playing that? And I don't like that. But it was like a lot of that with yeah. great, great talented people. And then when it got finished, it was really, it's really good. I, I think it's really good. I played one of, because it's a reimagining of somebody. And so all new arrangements recorded, but the voice of the person is dropped in. And the person is no longer with us. Oh, man. So, so one of the two songs I originally did was um, written by someone. And, you know, when you write something and you're that connected to it and someone else screws around with it, usually why did you do this yeah and, and when i was asked what do you think of the idea of doing this i said it's either the worst idea ever or if it's pulled off 
and you don't expect to hear what you're going to hear because the arrangement's so different. And then when you're finished, you remember how wonderful this artist is, then you win. But good luck. And the guy said, yeah, we thought you'd think that way. How'd you like to do something? I go, what? But it's COVID. I go, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'll try it. It took a long time. We end up going to the like the principal arranger's house in Woodland Hills, and we arrange, we record the London Symphony. Hmm. I'm four in the morning because it's, you know, it's on the West Coast, live. He has a connection. He knows the conductor, knows the oh. engineer, and we do this live. It is phenomenal. I'm like, oh, this, man. That's I mean, got to be crazy. Like, no, this is like... 21st century shit you know I'm yeah going, you gotta love really that cool. man yeah. that's cool and, stuff and, and it turned out I played the song for the guy that wrote it and he's sitting where I am on my desk I have two big speakers and he has his hands like this his head is down I'm thinking he's gonna get up and punch me I I, <laughs> I think it's great but he might not he's and gonna he looks, hate it right and he looks up he has tears in his eyes uh, gets up and hugs me thanking me thanking Yes. Good. Beautiful. So this project, if it happens, you will hear about it. I promise. Oh, can't, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Do we have one quick minute to talk real quick about the Mark Knopfler, the, the drum set? Oh, that's a funny story. Okay. This is a great story. This is a great so, story. So here's how I know Mark. I'm living in New York. There is a studio, Electric Lady. There's a woman that does the, the booking for it. I'm in there sometimes. I meet her. She's a delightful, cute little girl. And she loves music. And she and I become friends. I mean, real platonic friends where she'd say, there's a concert you want to go? Or I'd call her, yeah, come on, let's go. Let's go. We'd hang out. She'd come to my house to sleep over. I wouldn't touch. I mean, we were just friends, really friends. Then I moved to LA because I got this day gig in 1977. I call Electric Lady. She's no longer there. She's gone. She got married. I went, oh, man. So she, and she's gone. I think it, she didn't even call me. She didn't say, hey, I'm checking out. And that's weird. Cut to it's 1985-ish, six-ish. I'm now on Entertainment Tonight. They hired me. That's a two-hour story. It was, I did not, not want a job. I didn't expect a job on television. But they said, you, you know, you were looking for a music correspondent. Are you interested? Hey, could you come for an interview? I thought the interview was going to be them with a the mic saying, so what's new about the music business? They're interviewing me for a job. And he's saying, when can you get started? I said, I'm here, let's do it. He goes, I have no one for you to interview. I said, why would I be interviewing someone? He goes, do you know why you're here? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> he says, well, we, you know, we'd like you to be our car. Be easy, you'll be great at it. I went, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, you know. So I tried it and it was fun. It was easy and and, and it was... And I knew most of the artists that I was interviewing, which was a lot of fun. Like I was, I was mentoring and I had signed Robbie Neville and Richard Marks. They were very close friends. They were like my little brothers. And then now I'm interviewing them. And I had taught them before some technique of how to do interviews and stuff. And Robbie looks at me and says, this is exactly what you taught me. This is very odd. I said, yeah, okay. Act like we don't know each other, you know? Yeah. So, so I walk in, it, it's a sunset marquee and I'm walking in to meet this guy, Mark Knopfler. They had an album out. And, and the reason why I'm meeting with anyone is because they have a hit record. Otherwise, I wouldn't be meeting with these people. Sure. It, it's for little pieces for Entertainment Tonight. And music's the last. 
it's film, TV, and then a mile later is music. They, that's the last thing they care about. And they usually uh, uh, do a lot of them and store them until it's a, a bigger hit. And then they edit again and again. It's number three on the charts. It's number two on the charts. And then they put it out. Anyway, so I walk in. I, I listen carefully to the record. It's not what normally is my kind of music, but I see Randy and Mike are playing on it, like the Breckers. I'm listening to some ballads. And I'm thinking, this is so well done. It's so, the record was so musical. It was just not what I would ever imagine. I said, this is really wonderful. It's called Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms, great. So I walk in to meet the guy. The guy comes out. It's Knopfler. He says, and he's like, he's going like this. I said, you okay? He goes, Actually, I'm not feeling very well. I said, oh, you know, we don't have to. He goes, no, 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 I have to meet you. And he holds my hand. Now, normally when someone says, hey, Bobby, I'm a fan or I got to meet you, it's because they're doing music similar in some way to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Something. This guy's record has nothing to do with anything I've ever done. Yeah. But he wants to meet me. I've heard so much about you. I'm going, what? All of a sudden, this woman comes out of the back room it's the woman from Electric Ladyland that disappeared. It's Mark's wife. Oh, no, you kept not. No, you got to be kidding me. And she's been <laughs> telling him about me for years. So he says, I can't wait to meet you. And I have no idea why. And Lawrence comes jumping over the couch and we're hugging. And we That's... become immediate friends. It's like family. And he's not feeling well. He says, no, no, we'll be okay. And I said, okay. And we do oh, the interview. Man. And I just, I want to get the interview over with so we can hang. And yeah. we become lifelong friends from that moment. And every time he's here doing anything, we're together. And, and, and if I'm ever there, I'm with him. He's the most wonderful person. Like, And again, we're really different. We have completely different everything. But he's just... A, I can tell you... Let me tell you... No, that's two inside stories. But I'll give you one, because it's me. I had just broken up with a girl. Um... He called me and, and and he was calling me Bobster. And he goes, Bobster, what are you doing? I said, hey, it was right before Christmas. My birthday is in that time period. He goes, hey, ma hey, hey Mark, how are you doing? He goes, Bobster, you okay? I said, no, I'm fine. He could tell from my voice I was not fine. But I did everything to hide it. But he knew. He could read me. He said, what's wrong? I said, I'm fine, Mark, stop. He goes, what? I go, I just broke up with this. It's fine. you know. This is Mark in a nutshell. He sends me a ticket to London so I can come celebrate like Christmas with him. There you, you know go, what? man. I walk, his, a car picks me up. I go to a, where he's playing. He's got a gig with his band. He's looking, he's looking at the sideline. I show up and he says, oh, everyone, my dear friend Bobby's here. It's his birthday, which it was today. Let's all sing happy birthday to Bob. I mean, this guy, <laughs> he's, and, and I had one of the greatest Christmas. We laughed every single moment we were together. We just have the best time. So in, so back to what you want me to talk about, yeah. since it's your world, he, you know, we send each other emails, notes, letters, whatever. And there's one note, and I remember because it was all this alliteration. He goes, please, please pity the poor fool that pines for the Red Ripple Rogers Red Ripple Wine drum set. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Right. But apparently he's collecting drums at the time. He, yeah, he's, he bought... 
I don't me. know this. I right. don't, you don't like know this cars, yet. right? Right, right. The poor pining for them. What's wrong with this guy? What is a red ripple? And I look and I go, I have those drums. Apparently, they're unbelievably rare. They're ugly as sin. I bought them off a drummer when I was just starting to play other music than jazz because no one could hear me playing on my little Gretsch set quietly. And I remember at a club hearing a great sounding drum set. And I asked the drummer, I said, if you ever want to unload these things, I need them. And the guy called me one day and said, they're yours. And I bought them. They were ugly, but I recorded with them. They were uh, on the Eastern European tour. And for for a second, like for my drumming friends who will listen to this, this is Wine Red Ripple Rogers kit with two 8x12 toms, not an 8x12 and a 9x13, two 8x12s, 16-16 floor tom, and a 14x20 bass drum. I think it was a 14 tom. Uh, it's, a 16 then. Maybe it was. No, maybe so. it was. I yeah, maybe it was. I, I never realized that could sound better. <laughs> I ended yeah. up getting double, and then and then second was a 16, the first so, was a 14. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, I, so, so I go online, I, I, I have, I love photography. That's my, you know, alternate life. And I look and I see a photograph of me on the Eastern European tour in 1970, standing in front of those drums. Yep. So I send them to Mark and I said, you mean these? And he goes, Bob's, that's it. I gave them to my dentist. That's <laughs> He moved to Arizona and I called him. I said, are you still using those drums? He goes, no, they're in storage. He said, can I get them back? No, said, of course. So I said, Mark, they're yours. Come get them. And so what Mark does, Mark then gets on the phone to me. He said, Steve, I need you to do me a favor. So I get the guy who does, uh, uh, Wade Daniel, the guy who does all the cartage work for the Rolling Stones when they move all over the world. I said, Wade, I, you got to do me a favor. You got to get one of your guys to go up into the middle of the mountains up. The, this dentist lives up in no man's land. I didn't even know that. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. I said, get Wade. I said, send one of your guys. He's going to go pick these drums up. When they pick them up, put them in a truck, drive them straight back to my shop in Chicago so that I can keep them there. And then I refurbished them. And then for Mark, I ended up, he wanted to find a matching snare drum for that. And I think he used to use a Rogers Chrome Dynasonic. Yeah, that's what I used. I actually found one. I actually found one online. I I didn't have anything to do with it, but you're you're right. I would, no, I used... I use a, a, a Dynasonic. Chrome Dynasonic. And we went out and found the Wine Red Ripple snare to go with it that I sent to Mark later. But yeah, we had the drums in Chicago. We we refurbed them, just you know, cleaned them up a little bit. It was so funny. But yeah, that was the, the story of the Wine Red Ripple, had kit, which same, is in the film. By the way, if you look at the drum heads, the original drum heads in the film and what you had, yep. played so quietly and never broke heads. I know. I know. I never, I never broke heads either. No, some, some guys are going through heads like crazy. But you were playing, are... you know. But you know how to play. There's a difference. I there. don't know if I know how to play. I just yeah, you know do. How to play loud. But you, I but you... at the beginning when I was playing rock and roll, I had to wear gloves. I was getting blisters. I'm serious. <laughs> uh, but you pull the sound out of the drum, and you don't have to, you know, try to push through it. But, Roy but it, it was a great Roy Halley put the sound out. Right. Anyway. Uh, well, Bobby, this this has been wonderful. I really enjoyed okay. it. I appreciate you taking the time, man. Edit your ass off of these people. Are go- you know what? Or sell it as a cure for insomnia. <laughs> because you probably make some money. You know? 
Our drummer friends are going to love this, and uh, we'll do a nice edit on it. We'll get it down to you, and uh, you can, I don't, you can I don't check it out. I'm, I'm okay. All right. Okay. All right. I'm Sounds good. Well. Hey, I appreciate it, pal. And yeah, I, I can't wait to hear minutes. about I got to get my mics together, get in my car, and drive. Rock and roll. See you later, pal. Goodbye, Stevie. See you later. Thanks, pal. Take care. Let's Have stay fun. Out of trouble, everybody. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya.